Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. Where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. One of the problems in America is that we have two very distinct and different narratives. From the dominant culture, we hear about a picnic between pilgrims and Indians. We hear about a manifest destiny of God giving this land to a nation. We have the lived experience of Native Americans. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Gabe is off this week as he's getting ready for Q 2019, the annual Q conference happening in Nashville, April 24th through the 26th. There's still room for you, so go to qideas.org, click on the Q 2019 tab on the left side of your screen. You can see who's speaking and get your tickets right there. Now, one of the phrases you'll see when you visit that page is, no topic is off limits, everyone has a voice. Gabe and his team mean that as they try to prompt us to be restorers. On this show and at various Q events, we've delved into many hard issues, including the issue of race. And we've had many Christians from an African-American perspective speak on that matter. But what about the perspective of our Native American brothers and sisters? Today, we'll feature two talks. First, let's listen to Mark Charles, who we heard just a few moments ago. Mark is with a group called Five Small Loaves, a group with a mission to pursue racial reconciliation through honest education, intentional conversation, and meaningful action. At a Q conference several years ago in Boston, he gave this talk called A City on a Hill. Let's listen in. When you think about what's been going on in the past few years, it's easy to conclude that we have a race problem in our country. It's easy to to realize that there's some problem going on racially in our nation, and we've been trying actually for hundreds of years to try and fix this problem. We have Eric Gardner. We have Ferguson. We have the Black Lives Matter movement. There is a deep problem going on in our nation around the issue of race. But I want to introduce to you the thought today, the idea that our problem is not primarily racial. I want to introduce to you that our our problem is primarily community, and we do not know what it means to live in community. George Erasmus, an aboriginal leader from Canada, has a quote. He says, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, There can be no real community. One of the problems in America is that we have two very distinct and different narratives. From the dominant culture, we hear about a picnic between pilgrims and Indians. We hear about a manifest destiny of God giving this land to a nation. And then we have the lived experience of African Americans who are brought over here as slaves. We have the lived experience of Native Americans who received acts of genocide and were marginalized to such the fringes of society that we were not even given a voice in this country. And so we have two very distinct narratives, two very distinct histories, and we do not, as a nation, share a common memory. So today I want to give you, I want to begin to 
help us understand what is our common memory. And I want to start with what's known as the doctrine of discovery. In the 1400s, there was a series of papal bulls coming out of the Catholic Church, written in the 1450s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even as late as 1893. Collectively, they became known as the doctrine of discovery. At the most basic level, what the doctrine of discovery said, it was the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, whatever lands you find are not ruled by Christian rulers, those people are less than human, and the land is yours for the taking. It was the doctrine of discovery that allowed European explorers to colonize Africa and enslave the African people. It was the doctrine of discovery that allowed Christopher Columbus to get lost at sea, land in a new world inhabited by millions, and claim to have discovered it. Because his doctrine, his theology, told him that this land was empty. In 1763... King George made a proclamation. In this proclamation, he drew a line down the Appalachian Mountains. And essentially, he said to the colonists, you no longer have the right of discovery of the empty lands west of Appalachia. This upset the colonists. They were so upset that they wrote a letter of protest a few years later. And in their letter, they said, he has endeavored to prevent the populations of these states. And he has been raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. They went on in the same letter to refer to the native peoples of this continent as merciless Indian savages. Anyone know what letter I'm talking about? It was signed July 4th, 1776. 30 lines below the statement, all men are created equal. My people are called merciless Indian savages. How can those two coexist in the same statement? How can those two coexist, all men are created equal and merciless Indian savages exist in the same declaration? There's only one way that they can coexist. The Declaration of Independence assumes Native Americans are not human. A few years later, as the colonists were moving on in their experiment, they created this other document And they were talking about the census, and they decided who was going to be included. And they decided to include white men, but not include, to specifically exclude women, Indians, and African Americans. A few years later, they amended this constitution and said, now the Bill of Rights extends to some of these marginalized communities. But then a few years after that, in the 1970s, they reinterpreted this amendment and concluded that now unborn babies weren't human, and so we can abort them. The problem is that the basis of the Constitution is not a value for life. It's a value for exploitation and profit with a practice of dehumanization. In 1823, there were two men of European descent arguing over a piece of land. One bought it from a native tribe, the other bought it from the government. They were in litigation to decide who owned the land. In reviewing the case, the Supreme Court stated that based on the doctrine of discovery, Native Americans only had the right of occupancy of the land, while Europeans had the right of discovery of the land and therefore true title to it. This created a Supreme Court case precedent upon which all land titles were based. It was referenced by the court as recently as 2005. In 1830, we had the Indian Removal Act, which allowed, essentially allowed 
native peoples to be forcibly removed from their lands. This resulted in the long walk for the Navajo and the Trail of Tears for the Cherokee, and many other tribes were forcibly removed, and many, many thousands of Indians died along the way. In 1862, we had the largest mass execution in the history of the United States of America. 38 Dakota men, after a trial, a military trial lasting minutes, were ordered to be hanged on December 26, 1862. This was ordered by President Abraham Lincoln. November 29, 1864, we had the Sand Creek Massacre. 200 peaceful Cheyenne and Arapaho men, women, children were camped over a hill. They were met by an army. They were flying a white flag of surrender and an American flag to show they were, they were there peacefully, and they were slaughtered. In 1879, based on the premise that the only good Indian and a dead one, a statement made by a general, but Captain Richard Henry Pratt said that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead, kill the Indian in him and save the man. This became the basis for boarding schools, Indian boarding schools, where children were forcibly taken from their homes, put into military-style boarding schools run by the government and the church, and forced to assimilate to to American culture. The last of these boarding schools closed in the 1970s and 80s. In 1890, we had the massacre at Wounded Knee, a one-day battle where 350 uh, soldiers, our warriors, were massacred at Wounded Knee. 20 Congressional Medals of Honor were given to the U.S. soldiers who participated in this massacre. To this date, all efforts to have these medals rescinded have failed. And on December 19, 2009, President Obama signed House Resolution 3326, the 2010 Department of Defense Appropriations Act. In it was a seven-bullet-point apology. It mentioned no specific tribe, no specific treaty, no specific injustice. It basically said, you had some nice land. Our people didn't take it very politely. Let's just call it our land and get along together. It ended with a disclaimer saying nothing in this apology is legally binding. As a church, as a nation, what do we do? How do we respond to this kind of a history? Scripture actually gives us an idea, and it says it calls its people to lament and to weep and to cry over their sins and over their injustices. The problem is, as Americans, we have a very mis guided understanding of what it means to lament. When we think about, as American Christians, what it means to lament the sins of our church and the sins of our nation, we think of something like Second Chronicles 7.14, which says, if we humble ourselves, repent of our ways, and cry out to God, he will hear our cries and do what? He will heal our land. But we don't remember that we live in a pagan nation that doesn't have a land covenant with God. This promise was made to the people of Israel not to the United States of America. So how do you lament the sins of a nation that does not have a covenant with God? What do we do? Why do we even think this way? Well, let me tell you a brief history of Christendom. In the first century, we had the church and we had empire. They were in opposition to each other. You became a member of the church and knew you were in opposition to empire. In the 4th century, Constantine became a Christian and Christianized Rome. This fundamentally changed the church. Now your membership in the church was not dependent upon your baptism. It was dependent upon your citizenship in the empire. The notion of Christian empire was born. However, if you read the teachings of Jesus, you will notice that he never talks about building a worldly kingdom. The notion of Christian empire is absolutely false. It does not exist in the New Testament teachings. 
But because now that we have a Christian empire, St. Augustine begins to develop a just war theory. Because if you're a Christian empire, you can't just go killing people. You need to have a good reason for doing it. In the 11th century, we have the Crusades. And in the 13th century, we have the beginnings of the papal bulls beginning to dehumanize the other who do not worship the God of the Bible by calling them infidels. This is a very fundamental change because now you can go to war not based on a just war theory, but based on your theology. In the 14th century, we have the explicit dehumanization of the other and the call to war in the doctrine of discovery. Initially, the Protestant church pushed back against the doctrine of discovery. But in 1630, John Winthrop, in this very city, preached a sermon. And in this sermon, he referred to the colonists in Boston as a city on a hill. Now, in this reference, he's referring to the teachings of Jesus. He was talking to his disciples and saying, do your good deeds and do your love. Show your love on a, on, a, on a bright stand and show it to the world. A very good teaching. But he goes on in the sermon to talk about if we walk in his ways and keep his commandments and follow what we're supposed to do, the Lord will bless us in this land whether we go out to possess it. Possessing the land is taken from Deuteronomy where God is commanding the people of Israel to go into Canaan and possess the land. And if you read the book of Joshua, it doesn't take you long to realize that possessing the land is essentially God-ordained genocide. So now John Winthrop and the Protestant church is connecting being a city on a hill and possessing the land. And American exceptionalism is born. President Reagan refers to this often throughout his presidency and his governorship. And even a few years ago, or a few months ago, in front of a joint session of Congress, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stands before our senators and congressmen and says, because America and Israel, we share a common destiny, the destiny of promised lands. Why would he say that? Because he knows his audience. He knows our implicit bias. He knows what we tell ourselves, that we are God's chosen people, and this is our promised land. But brothers and sisters, America is not God's chosen people. We do not have a land covenant with God. This is not Europe's promised land. The United States of America is not rich and powerful because of God's blessing. We are rich and powerful because we are systemically racist and inherently unjust. So how do we lament? If we're going to lament, we need to have a different hope. We cannot hope that God's going to heal our land. We need a different hope. We need a hope that's based not in a covenant with God, but in his character. Our hope doesn't come from the promises made to Israel. Our hope comes from God's willingness to negotiate with Abraham over Sodom and Gomorrah. Our hope comes from God saying to Jonah, I want to have mercy on Nineveh. Go out and preach to them. Our hope comes and is articulated perfectly by C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The children are in Narnia, and they're, they're finding about the White Witch, and they're experiencing the winter, and they're hearing about this character, Aslan, and they're having dinner in the beaver's house, and they're asking questions about who Aslan is. And finally, Susan says, excuse me, is Aslan a man? And Mrs. Beaver laughs and says, no, honey, he's not a man, he's a lion. And she says, oh my gosh, I will be quite nervous to meet a lion. Well, you should. If anyone can stand before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either just plain silly or braver than most. And then Susan says, is he safe? No, he's not. He's a lion. 
But he's good. Brothers and sisters, confessing the sins of our nation will not be safe. We do not have a hope in a covenant with God that he will heal our land. But our hope is that God is good. God is good. And he will bring good out of this mess if we humble ourselves. A few months ago, I wrote an article. It was called The Doctrine of Discovery, A Buried Apology and an Empty Chair. In this article, I laid out a vision for what I call a truth commission. Because where community is to be formed, common memory must first be created. Did anyone learn anything new today? We need a common memory. We need a memory that's not based on fantasy, but based on reality. We need to understand the foundations of our nation. I hope that you will continue to follow this work and this movement. And I invite you to come and hear more about this history and engage with this past so that as a church, we can begin to create a common memory and bring community and reconciliation into our land. Thank you. This again is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, and that was Mark Charles from Five Small Loaves. We had to edit the talk for time, so if you'd like to hear the full talk, just visit qideas.org and search for Mark Charles. Another Christian Native American ministry is called The Red Road. It's led by Charles and Suzanne Robinson. They, too, are trying to help build relationships while being honest about the past, but with a hope toward the future. Gabe sat down with them a couple of years ago at a Q conference. Let's listen to their discussion. Charles, I just want to start. I mean, there's such a perception about the Native American population. Um, in fact, that word's not a word you prefer to use to describe yourselves, Native American. I want you to tell us a little bit about why, and then I want you to talk about the perception people have that Indians or people on reservations are um, more subject to alcoholism, suicide, depression, those kinds of things. Help us dispel those or confirm for us what, what's happening in the Native American population. Well, you know, there is a, a great level of dysfunction within our Native communities but it all goes back to the cause and effect of what really is the reservation system or the, essentially the welfare system that the governments put our Native people on back in the 1800s, where we became instantly dependent upon the government for everything. Uh, they wouldn't allow us to leave the reservation to hunt, pursue a lot of our, our, our uh, historical and traditional ways of, of gathering food. Yeah. But then in the mid to late 1800s, uh, they came along with what became known as the Indian boarding schools. And so these boarding schools, essentially what would happen is they have these young, these young children starting at the age of four or five or six would be sent off to these boarding schools, forcibly removed from their families, and they were raised in these boarding schools. And uh, most of these were funded by the government, run by various churches, and there was great amounts of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional uh, that took place at these schools. You would say the government would basically make children when they were the age of five or six leave their home go away from the family? That is correct. Would families get to interact with them? Uh, very little. If they could afford to, uh, had a way to go get them from the boarding schools, they could come back and spend the summers with them. But uh, sometimes those boarding schools were, you know, hundreds of miles away or across the country, and they weren't able to, to have them come home even for the summers. So some families didn't see their children for exactly. 13 years? Exactly. So what you had is these kids being abused, and then when they graduated, they got of age to go back to the reservations, they would do so but they'd already suffered all this abuse. And so then they get married, they have children, their children are shipped off. Yeah. And so you got this cycle of abuse that's taken place from the mid-1800s 
really to the last one closing in 1985. 1985? 1985. And so you've got, um, we, we take a look statistically at, at Addiction rates are four times the national average. Suicide rates are seven times the national average. Unemployment is 70, 80 percent. And wow. so it, it's pretty staggering statistics. Yeah, you now. can start to understand why there could be hopelessness. And Susan, um, tell, us, tell us where you come from. Tell us about um, your nation. It's on. And, and also tell us a little bit about reservation life. I mean, you grew up in a reservation. Like, tell us more about what that was like. Okay. Um, I'm a Lakota I'm a Blackfoot native, so the Lakotas come from South Dakota, and Blackfoot is from Canada and part of uh, Montana. I was born on a reservation in South Dakota uh, called Rosebud, but I was raised um, on the Blood Tribe in Alberta, Canada. And even though, like Charles mentions all these statistics about, like, what's going on with us today, those things are present, but they don't define who we are as Native people. We don't look at those things and think, this is who we are. We, we know that we are strong people, and we know that we have a different destiny that has been bestowed upon us. You know, for me, you know, I was raised with the importance of family. I had the for- fortunate experience of being raised by my aunties and uncles and grandparents and around my cousins, something that I regret with my children that they don't have um, because we live in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. But we have just so much culture, so much, you know, our language is spoken around every day. You know, I wake up in mornings and hear my family joking and humor has been a big, a huge part of our family, huge part of our people. And so to hear, you know, your culture and people singing in the native songs and being able to attend the, our powwows, our native dances and our ceremonies, for me, that, that's been such great significance and really has allowed me to become who I am today. Yeah. Well, and, and for many people, again, they haven't had this experience, so you guys are helping us understand what your world's been like. One of the questions we asked was how people felt about how the U.S. government and the, and the American Indians, what that relationship was like. Let's just put that slide up. You can see that uh, essentially 41% believe the American government owes a more humane, sustainable opportunity for the future uh, only 2% said the American government historically treated them fairly and any challenges they have today are their own responsibility. Don't take offense to that. I'm sure it's just people that don't understand, you know, the, the struggle and the story. 31% though acknowledge, I don't know. Like, I'm never hearing about this. And so, Charles, tell us, what have you been doing to try to engage this, uh, this area of your heritage and life today, 2016? Like, what, what are ways that you're involved in trying to help? Education speaking and, and reading and, and trying to educate people, open people's eyes to what's going on, uh, the, the histo- historically what's happened in our Native communities that's never been taught in our history books. We didn't learn these things in schools, right? Right. Uh, and so, so we really just try to educate people. We travel to Native communities throughout the U.S. and Canada uh, sharing Jesus with people, but we come in um, just, just relationally. Yeah. And, and you've got to be in community with people. So that's, that's the number one thing we try and do is be in community with people. Susan, tell me, tell me this. I mean, just very honestly, in the Native American community, is there still a distrust of the white man? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, especially in the border towns that surround our reservations. It's actually quite dangerous for us to, like when it becomes nighttime, to walk in the streets alone. I cannot tell you how many times I've been chased um, on a regular basis, um, being called prairie nigger or wagon burner. 
Um, and it was quite an ex- a scary experience. It's not something I'd want anybody else to go through. And so because of those experiences, I grew a uh, resentment and hatred for, for these people who I didn't know. You know, I didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing. But I became racist myself. I began to hate and I just didn't have any value for for white people. But it, but what happened though was I, I began to get into relationship with people who were not native, and you know, in my language is you know Napiqueggs, which is white people. And I prefer to say Napiqueggs because for me it just has more honor to it. You know, I've grown to um, have a better respect for these people, for different people, and realizing that. Not everybody is the same. And, and that's something that I try to help share with our Native people is to actually walk with somebody else that, you know, who loves you, who's of a different yeah. ethnicity. We got all these different cultural differences. And, and the, the challenge is for people ministering within Native communities are going to our, they take their cultural preferences and they turn them into biblical standards. Mm. And when we do that, we begin to think I'm right and you're wrong because our ways are different. But so even like with, within our culture, uh, we don't have make extended eye contact with people. And so that's very disrespectful for our, for our Native children especially. And so people have to understand some of these cultural differences before they can effectively minister within Native communities. You know, a great book, if somebody's interested in learning more, is a, a book by a dear friend of ours, the late Richard Twist. He wrote a book called One Church, Many Tribes. I, I strongly recommend that book. One Church, Many Tribes. So if... You're hearing this conversation and you're kind of waking up that you didn't know much about it, kind of like me, a couple of years ago. That'd be a great resource. I know I got to spend some time in Montana and I went to the area where the Battle of Wounded Knee took place. And for me, it was an incredible education of what took place with your people. And um, I think for, for all of us, you know, we want to engage so many injustices today and we get very passionate about what's happening right now. And we can sometimes forget about our history and repenting of what's taken place and figure out ways to work to restore and to renew. I know a lot of people just don't know what to do, so they're paralyzed. What would you say is the first step to take to try to engage? You know, I would try and come alongside a church or an organization or somebody that has a year-round presence in a Native community and just get in relationship with people. Have people over to your house for dinner. You go to their house for dinner. Reach out. And if anybody has questions, get a hold of us, and we can help direct you to some folks in your areas that uh, might be a good starting place. And that was an honest discussion between Gabe Lyons and his guests, Charles and Suzanne Robinson. We fully understand that you might not agree or understand with all that has been said on this show, but we hope that you stay curious so that you can think well and advance good. That's the purpose of Q. We're out of time for this week. Remember, Q 2019 is just a couple of weeks away in Nashville, and you're still welcome. More information at qideas.org. For Gabe, I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.